Bibles to Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, on through the end of that paragraph, we'll read that portion today and then study the first three verses. Romans chapter 15, and beginning in verse 14, it is the word of the Lord that says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Would you please pray with me? Father, I pray for the preaching of this passage of your word, that you would be glorified that Christ in us would be again the hope of glory, that Christians would be reminded and encouraged to faithfulness, and that people who don't yet know Christ as their Savior would be drawn by the speaking of your word and by the intervening of your Holy Spirit to salvation today. We pray for that not selfishly in only our assembly, but we pray for so many sister churches all over our community, and as we've been reminded today, the church across the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You could be seated. And children, if you would choose, you can go down to uh, Children's Church this morning, down the hall, and join your class. Uh, I'm excited to share with you this paragraph. Um, actually, these two paragraphs that finish chapter 15 are all going to work together and I'll do my best to show you what is, I think, a pretty extensive outline of these two paragraphs together. Um, it's, it's a little complicated to keep it all in one outline in mind, but my hope is to remind us and come back frequently and see how Paul is describing what it means to be in ministry, what it means to be a church that ministers the gospel to each other. I'm excited to teach it, however... Practically, I understand that there's a time change that's happened today. And while it meant an extra hour of sleep, I don't know how you choose to steward your time change. Do you go to bed an hour later? Do you wake up an hour earlier? Or do you just sleep an hour more? I don't know how you do it. 
I get overly excited about the extra hour and wind up frittering it away somehow. <laughs> However, you got the extra hour of sleep, but it means you're going to be getting hungry soon. <laughs> I'm sympathetic of that. And so I plan to be efficient this morning, and we're not going to try to bite off more than we should in one sitting. But I do want to talk today about the stewardship of ministry in the gospel community. Here we are, people about the good news of Jesus Christ, and we are, and I know it's a little overused, but we are in discipleship life together. And I want to talk about what it means that we minister to each other. What does it mean to be a discipler? What does it mean to be a gospel minister? I wonder, am I assuming too much by asking the question, what does it mean for you to be a disciple maker? And some of you might sit back and go, who's he talking to? I'm not a gospel minister. I'm not a disciple maker. So maybe I'm assuming a bit too much, and I hope to explain to you how I would suggest every one of us who has received saving grace from God is a minister of that very grace. So the title is A Church Able to Instruct One Another. Today we're going to look at verses 14, 15, and then part of 16. There will be a bit of an abrupt ending halfway through verse 16, but for sake of time, I think it's the best place for us to stop and pick up with the second part of the sermon next week. In this text, we see Paul continuing his prayer that he started in verse 13. You see verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That is a prayer for ongoing maturing, trusting in God, seeing him as our hope, our joy, and our peace in believing. So on that note, Paul builds the next paragraph. The Spirit of God is leading Paul to not just say, cast your wishfulness on God, but rather to say, here's an admirable prayer. Here's a worthwhile thing to pray for each other. My prayer is that you would be filled with hope from the God who gives hope, that your joy would abound, and that you would know the peace of being reconciled to a holy God. That's a good prayer. How does that happen? That's what the Spirit of God moves Paul into. Now, how do we do gospel ministry to each other? How do we grow each other in the gospel? So, as we looked last week, our ultimate hope binds us together. Here we are in community, and I'm reminded that in that community, in this text of Romans 14 and 15, this past week, I was studying for a youth group. We're walking through the book of Genesis in youth group. And we were in chapter 13 the last couple of weeks. And Pastor Will shared a week ago, and then I was talking this past week, verse 8, then Abram said to Lot, let's not have strife between you and me because we're kinsmen. We're brothers. The tie that binds us together is a family tie. What commends us to serve each other is a sense of family. So the concluding thought of Romans reminds us of the purpose of God glorifying himself as we grow in Christ-likeness. So we're called ministers. Paul calls himself a servant. He says he's a debtor of the gospel. 
I wonder about our understanding of being a minister of the gospel. Let me give you this definition. We'll work from this definition. What does it mean to be a minister? A person who cares for another for the glory of God, especially as that care pertains to leading others into worshiping God. Okay, so a minister. A person who is caring for someone else to the glory of God. In other words, their greatest concern for that person is that they grow as a worshiper, a minister. So this function of ministry is not reserved for apostles, not for pastors, not Sunday school teachers, not small group leaders. I'm going to suggest that every single recipient of God's redeeming grace is a minister. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Paul is talking about mutual ministry, or Peter is talking about mutual ministry, and he says this, as each one of us has received a gift, use it to serve each other as good stewards of very grace. So this morning, I'm speaking to a church confident that many of the people I'm speaking to are Christ followers. And if so, ministers. So let's talk today about some of the characteristics of ministers, you and I. Two in particular. What should a minister commend and what should a minister's conviction be? So those are two for today. If we are, in fact, ministers of the good news of Christ and worship is of great importance to us, worship in each other is of great importance to us, what should we commend and what should our convictions be? What should we care deeply about? Let's talk about the first one. Ministry commendations. It starts in verse 14. Now, Apostle Paul is not, I mean, he's not blowing smoke here. He says, I myself am satisfied about you. <laughs> it reminds me of this, this weird thing. You, mo- most of you know Raven, little three-year-old boy with our family. And I've had this thing now over the last month where I'll say, guess what? Or you know what? And he knows what's coming now. And I'll say, I like you. You're a nice boy. And he gets this big smile on his face. And he knows. He knows what's coming already. Paul opens up with, hey, church, I like you. You're nice. He's not blowing smoke here. He literally means to tell them, I I do have affection for you. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I thank God through Christ for you because your faith is talked about all over the world. Paul was thankful to be in fellowship and relationship with this church. So Cranfield says, Paul is simply going to remember something that sometimes we forget. That it is Christian to assume general spiritual maturity of Christian brothers unless they've given you reason to believe otherwise. That might be a unique perspective. It is Christian to assume the spiritual maturity of other Christians. I'm going to suggest there's a doctrinal reason for that. 
It is Christian to assume maturity and other people who call themselves Christian. That's what Paul's doing. And in commending them, he commends them for three things. Let's walk through these three things and see how they all point to Jesus Christ. First of all, in verse 14, he says, hey, church, I like you. You're a good church. Your faith is spoken of. You yourselves are full of goodness. He commends them for their goodness. This is an uprightness in their identity. It's not theoretical goodness. It's not positional holiness. He's commending them because there's practical goodness. In other words, they aren't just proclaimed holy by the blood of Christ. The shed blood of Christ has transformed them in their function. It is function of a truly converted person. James stresses that. He says, don't tell me you have positional rightness or goodness if you don't also have the practices to accompany it. Right? That's James. He says in chapter 2, verse 16, if you see someone else who is in great need and you say, oh, I see your great need, be warmed and filled, have a great day. That's not really faith. Because true positional holiness includes practices of holiness. Now, there is in the history of Christianity a great distinction in the order of things. As gospel teachers, we would say the works of salvation follow our regeneration. They follow our position. They don't lead to our position. That is a great distinction in Christianity and human history. There are many teachers of the gospel who would say good works and a position of adoption, of inheritance, of heaven... Good works lead to that one. We would deny that from Scripture and say, in fact, it is that work of justification, that work of making us new that then produces fruit of repentance. When he talks about their goodness, he's not talking about perfection, but that they genuinely love what is righteous. First thing the gospel minister commends is goodness. Second thing the gospel minister commends is a grasp of knowledge. Look what he says in the middle of verse 14. Able to instruct one another. They knew enough to know how to minister to each other. Filled with knowledge, able to instruct. They had a grasp of spiritual truth. Not only salvation, but doctrine. (laughs) He has gone to great lengths in the book of Romans to lay out carefully some pretty significant doctrine of the gospel. And he says, at the end of writing this, church, you know 
the truth. And he commends that. They knew God and they knew the truth revealed of God. Gospel ministers commend understanding. They commend knowledge. Third, they don't just have information for information's sake, but they have this knowledge and therefore an ability to instruct others. That's very important to a gospel minister. Maybe, maybe you've heard the word legacy. You've heard people talk about our legacy. It's used sometimes in a way that might be a little uncomfortable. I don't know exactly what you're saying at this point. What name is it you're trying to make for yourself? Because I can hear John the Baptist echoing in the back of my head. Like, he must increase and we must decrease. And so I don't know about legacy always, but I will say this. Paul expressed a passion for multi-generational gospel discipleship. And one of my favorite passages is in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul tells his young pastor, mentor, Timothy, the things I've taught you, the knowledge you've grown in, teach it to people who will teach it to people. So, so Paul's not interested in saying, I'm going to come and mentor you. I'm going to come and tutor you in the knowledge and the doctrine of God. And what you do with it doesn't matter. He says, I'm going to give you truth. And you are going to give it to someone else. He commends them for being able to instruct each other. It was Paul and the book of Hebrews it, and the book of Hebrews that was ashamed that people who should have had knowledge to be able to teach were still having to sit in class to learn. But not here. He says to them, I'm commending you because you have the knowledge and you're able to instruct each other. The word instruct is a compound word. It means to put in your mind the well-intentioned influence on another person, putting it in their mind. It's from a word, nuthatean, which only matters because at church, we provide for people what's called nuthetic counsel, which is another big word that simply means our attempt in counsel is to put the truth and the promises of Scripture into people's minds as they are struggling with a circumstance, a situation. To put the truth of Scripture into their minds. New thetic counseling. Which, let me remind you again on this topic of ministry to each other. Are we only able to exhort or teach others the things that we have experienced? Have you ever had a parent come to you when you don't have children yet, and say, what do I do when my three-year-old does this? I understand that you might feel very inadequate to answer that question. But should we? I, I completely understand that it's hard to sympathize with that person. But do we really have no truth 
to put in their mind? Because we haven't had a three-year-old who did that? Or a teenager who did that? Or a spouse who did this? Or a church that said that? Can we not exhort each other until we've experienced exactly what someone else is asking about? Or, or this is another one. If a woman comes to a man and asks a question, I, I can't relate. I, sorry, I can't help you. We think very differently. Or is the truth of Scripture, is the knowledge of doctrine what we put our hope in to put in someone else's mind in their moment of need? I understand that there are some particulars where experience is helpful. (laughs) If you come to me and ask me how I've handled parenting and what you want to learn is everything I've done, we're all going to be wrong. Because what you need counsel is not how I've done it, but how Scripture instructs us. Theology, who is God when your 12-year-old does this? Who is God when your job looks like that? Able to instruct, able to put in their minds the gift of using Scripture to come alongside each other and to counsel. The whole church has the gift of truth in Scripture to minister to each other. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says this about preaching. Preaching is for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So he commends these three things. What exactly are they? Where do they come from? Why are they commendable? Why would a church have them at all? Well, the answer to that is the gospel. The gospel minister will note these things as commendable. First, goodness. Goodness. There's none that's right, not one. Yet he commends a church's goodness. That is Holy Spirit regeneration goodness. Transformation only possible by the Spirit of God. The Bible gives these radical expressions of transformation. The Bible does. Now, I, I know that in Western culture, sometimes we overlook how intense conversion is. The Bible says in the book of Corinthians, I believe it's possible that it's Colossians. I can tell you it's the New Testament. It says, let the one who stole steal no more. But rather, now that he is a convert, say it. I guessed two and I was wrong. It's Ephesians? Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Let the one who stole not steal anymore, but rather work all the more so that he has extra income to give to poor people. You hear that? The neighborhood thief. If you left your bicycle in the front yard, that's the guy who would take it in the middle of the night. In comes the good news. In comes the transformation. The radical justification, regeneration of the gospel. And now that same guy who would steal the bike in the front yard if you left it out 
gets a part-time job in the evenings so that he can help relieve the financial burden of the poor. Why? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Radical transformation. He commends their goodness, which is the Holy Spirit's work of regenerating. He commends their knowledge, their confession of the holy. They confess what the natural person does not accept, the things of the Spirit of God. Those things used to be folly to them because they couldn't understand them, but now they're spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. That knowledge, that confession of holy, is again evidence that in that place the Holy Spirit is teaching. Third, exhortation. Again, not to have knowledge for knowledge's sake. That puffs up. But to build each other up. In other words, not to come into the gospel community and say, all right, how are my needs going to be met today? Because that's not Christian. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. What Paul is commending them for is not that that church had figured out a church growth model that was commendable. Paul is commending them because, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ was evident there. Goodness, knowledge, exhortation of each other in service. Gospel minister, I would ask you, are those the sorts of things that we're commending? Are we saying to each other that we are thankful that in the people we minister to, those things are evident? Therefore, therefore, to state it negatively, if the people we're ministering to are devoid of those things, they're not present in their life, do we give the opposite of a commendation? Do we give a condemnation? And say, lovingly, how do you confess Christ and not display the evidence of the gospel? Because if we minister in a way that says, we need to get more goodness around here, we need to get more knowledge, and we need to get more teaching or edifying of other people, we got to get more of this stuff. How do we, how do, we do that? We need, we need better programs. I mean, have you heard about this new book? If we use that book, people will start growing in goodness. And not, The problem is, we could very quickly move our confidence from the gospel itself into something else, like a program. Not that programs are bad, but they are not our source of hope. That would be moralistic deism, which is very, very popular. Very popular. To get better people without necessarily needing the gospel of Jesus Christ. God exists, that's deism. He's out there somewhere, we don't deny him. But he just doesn't have a lot to do with us. He doesn't really interfere too much. That's moralistic Deism, it's the religion of the day. It's the most popular confession in American religiousness. Moralistic deism. See how great Jesus is? You should do better. Moralistic. Deism. God exists, he cares, but he doesn't interfere much. 
So I wonder as a gospel minister, if we commend the same things we see in scripture. Let me talk secondly, if, if that's the commendation, let me talk about conviction. What do you care about? What do you care about? This is hard because sometimes the people we minister to, we mislead them by expressing cares that are out of balance. All right. Ministry convictions. I'm going to share with you some subpoints here. In verses 15 through 21, we see that the minister, Paul, has a purposeful ministry. He is convicted about being intentional. First, the symptom of purpose is this. In verses 15 and 16, the symptom of his purposefulness is this. On some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So there's a symptom that Paul has certain convictions. He says things that are not super easy to hear. But it's okay because he values, he has certain convictions. So he says some things. Because of the grace given me by God. He cares about the people he ministers to because he treasures the grace God's given to him and desires to share it with others. Verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, that meaning sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the first purposeful ministry is that Paul says, I speak to you boldly. Let's just see what he means by that. Can we, can we flip back through his letter? Go back to chapter 6. Let's hear what he says in verse 11. Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. Romans 6, 11 says, You should consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Well, yeah, that's, that's bold. Let's go ahead to chapter 11. Look at verse 24. In Romans eleven twenty four. He says, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to become unaware of the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has Come in. Yeah. That's, that's hard. That's hard to wrap my mind around. And I, I really don't like being told not to be stupid. <laughs> look at chapter 12 and look at verse 3 with me. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace 
given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay. I shouldn't think of myself too highly. A gospel minister points that out to me. I'm thankful. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. All of you people should be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Ooh, okay. That's challenging. Look at verse 8. Don't owe anyone anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, again, hard things. He says, I spoke to you boldly. Why? Because he has this purposeful ministry. It's a grace mission. Because of the grace given me by God. He said these things to them not because of ignorance or because of evil. But because of the grace of God. The grace of God. Warning your children about very real risk is not unloving, is it? Like saying, don't go by the road. Don't touch the stove when it's hot. Don't make them your best friends. It's not unloving. It's a ministry of grace to them. Paul does not have the luxury of being a people pleaser. He's a minister of the gospel. He can't only say what's popular or easy to hear. He is preaching the whole truth of God's word. The symptom of gospel ministry is willingness to speak truth in love. If you have convictions about the grace of God, you'll have a willingness to speak the truth in love. There, of course, is two ditches present, right? There are these two errors. All truth, no love. All love, no truth. Those are real problems. Truth in love is gospel ministry. Truth in love is what Paul is describing. So he has this purposeful ministry. He speaks boldly because grace given to me by God. But, he says next, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God. A minister of Christ Jesus. The word minister is compound. It literally means public minister. It carries a picture for them of the Levites, the way they ministered publicly. In other words, Paul says these hard things because Paul is an under-minister of the high priest. So, I wonder, if you have a conviction about the way that you minister, disciple each other, because you say, I'm enlisted as an under-priest of the high priest Jesus Christ. I wonder if that shapes your action, or your communication. I, I can't choose what to say or not to say right here. I'm functioning as an ambassador 
of another authority, of a greater authority. And, and so I, I can't smile and nod when you tell me that you've given yourself to sinning because I'm here as a delegate. That's a conviction that Paul was living by. That's why he couldn't be a people pleaser. He couldn't tell people what they desired to hear for their own sake. He chose rather to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, seeing himself as an under-minister of a high priest. Now, in this second point of ministry conviction, we see first there is some purposeful ministry, and I told you there's symptoms. We want to evaluate and say, are these symptoms of my ministry? Am I like this? Next time, we'll see there's a certain sincerity of ministry. Look at verse 16, the second half. Here is how sincere Paul is in the purpose of his ministry conviction. That the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. He is serious about Holy Spirit work of the gospel. To settle this point, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. I want to circle back around to the question about are we, as Christians, gospel ministers? And I want us to go to Ephesians 3 to address that question. It's likely that because you're not being compensated financially to do ministry, you might not see yourself in the work of ministry. And so I think Ephesians 3 will help us a little bit with defining how we see ourselves as gospel ministers. Ephesians 3, we'll start reading in verse number 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I was made a minister by what two things? The grace of God and his power in my life. I wonder if there's anyone here who would say, the grace of God has not been extended to me, and God's power has not worked in me. So therefore, I'm not a minister of the gospel. I wouldn't argue with that. I would invite you to see your need for the grace of God and the power of the gospel working in you. Let's go all the way back to Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And if you hear me read Paul's resume, 
in Ephesians 3, and you say, oh yeah, saving grace and the power of the gospel transforming me, that's not me, I'm not a minister. I agree. But I would invite you to look to Jesus Christ and be saved today. If, church, you would say, oh, I, I have received the saving grace of God, and the power of the gospel has in fact brought my soul from death to life, given me sight where I was blind, ears to hear where I had been deaf, then I would say to you, your resume sounds a lot like Paul's. And I I want to invite you to see yourself as a gospel minister to other people. I think biblically that's exactly what we are as Christ followers. And so we commend certain things and we have certain convictions. Are you a disciple maker? Do you understand Christian ministry? Again, a Christian minister, a person caring for others to the glory of God, especially as that care pertains to leading others to worship God. A second problem. The first one is just being aware that you're a minister. The second one is saying, okay, I know I've received God's grace, and I know the power of the gospel has worked in me. I'm not dead like I used to be. But I'm a mess. Sin has infected my life. I want to take you again to Paul. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 9. This is what he said specifically about his apostolic ministry. This is how Paul felt. He knew he was commissioned to ministry by the grace and power of the gospel. But he didn't think it was right that he have apostolic ministry. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says this. I am least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I had committed the sin of persecuting the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I know I'm a person infected by sin. I know I'm guilty before God, but having received grace, I worked harder than any of them. Listen closely, please. This is so important. You're considering yourself unworthy to be a gospel minister because you're taking inventory of yourself. And Paul says this, it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Paul, you're a persecutor of the church. Paul says, yeah, I'm an apostle by grace. I would say to you, you're a sinner, and you should say back to me, I'm a gospel minister by grace. Truthfully, it's easier to build churches 
on things a lot less than the gospel. It's just easier. It seems to at least happen faster. What I mean by that is you can get a great big gathering of religious people who will come enthusiastically for something less than the grace and power of the gospel. Like, for instance, when Paul commends their goodness and knowledge, that didn't happen overnight. When Paul commends them that you are ready to instruct other people, that that didn't happen quickly or easily. And so what I mean by that is there are things in our culture that will build a crowd a lot faster than gospel ministry. But not longer, not truer, not better, not faithfully. There is not another foundation that we could work at in building church other than ministering to each other the grace of God, the power of the gospel, discipleship. Commends what's spiritual rather than what's human. And its convictions can be diagnosed by symptom. You ever go into the doctor and tell them that you've got pain all over your body? Oh, whenever I press right here on my shoulder, it really, really hurts. Whenever I press right here at the base of my skull, right here, it really, really hurts. And down here on the inside of my knee, when I push right here on my knee, it really, really hurts. All kinds of symptoms. What are those symptoms? And the doctor says, well, I think you have a broken finger. (laughs) That was not in my notes. (laughs) Gospel ministers can be identified by symptoms. There are certain things about us that you can look at and say, wait... That's gospel ministry. You're depending on things that are spiritual. You're depending on a transformation that only comes by the Spirit of God. You're doing what you're doing because you care about God's grace. You're not commending yourself to them as a minister. Do what I do. You're commending the grace of God to them. Those are symptoms that mark gospel ministry. And I hope that as you pray before the Lord, now you would say, Father, thank you for working those things in me as a minister. The commission is to disciple making. Let's go one more place before we close. Just realized I don't have time for one more place, but we're going to go because I already said it. (laughs) Let's go to Matthew 18. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Did you know that? Anybody know that? Go to Matthew 28. And you know the Great Commission in verse 18. 19. This is the commission of gospel ministry. It is a commission to evangelize, but it is a commission to make disciples. 
And I just want to encourage you this morning, this ministry of Jesus Christ is a ministry of Christ, a ministry toward Christ, a ministry by Christ. And the Great Commission reminds us of that. Because in verse 16 of our text in Romans, we were told that Paul calls himself a minister of Jesus Christ. And here's the commission that Christ gave all of his ministers. He says this in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In modern vocabulary, Jesus says, I am on this. I've got this. You don't need schemes. You don't need, you don't need to be clever. You don't need to be cute. I handle this. And then he says right at the end, I am with you to the end of the age. Gospel minister, don't trust in yourself. Minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful this morning that we've been able to get this reminder about serving each other. I'm thankful that it helps protect us against the consumer mentality that can really permeate local church faith families. I'm thankful that as we think about the grace and the power of the gospel that has delivered us, we get an opportunity to worship you as you have set us in ministry. And so God, I pray that we would look to this commission that you've shared. I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ spoke that promise. All authority is his, and he is with us as we minister. So in the spirit of that promise, continue to grow us by your word, by the Spirit's teaching, to be ministers of this gospel. In Christ's name, amen.